Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Better Banking is opening your new first Commonwealth Bank personal checking account with our online account recommendation tool and being entered to win wireless earbuds. First Commonwealth Bank. Member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Visit fcbanking.com for details. Recorded live. This is an interactive, interactive. interactive podcast designed for audience participation. Come talk, 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 text chat, or listen live at TalkShoe.com. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, Bill Alexander, with you, and you're online with Bill Alexander, and we titled this program The Interviews, where I get a chance to interview some people that I've always been interested in, and uh, also the possibility of playing back some old interviews that I did when I worked for uh, radio stations throughout the uh, the uh, southwestern Pennsylvania radio market, but today we actually get to do a live interview. And for those of you that have gone to uh, TalkShoe.com and you've seen this program uh, billboard on their website, it says live, Netio interview with Pittsburgh radio legend Jack Bogut. Now, I don't know if, if he feels that he is, but as I said before and on previous programs, and I've said this to Jack in the past, I grew up listening to Jack Bogut. And um, I am now uh, 40 years of age. I won't ask Jack his age, <laughs> but I am 40 years of age, and I remember him on KDKA, WTAE, Wish, and now on WJIS. So right now I'm going to uh, introduce everybody, uh, Mr. Jack Bogut. Jack, how are you doing this morning? Very well, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful, and I've been talking about you over the last few weeks because this program that I do, and I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, is I host a live interactive talk program on the Internet Monday through Friday nights at 10 p.m. And what's really unique about it is not only do I get people from the Pittsburgh radio market listening, but I get them from all over the country, from, for example, Mississippi, Los Angeles, Tennessee. We've even got them from around the world as far away as Australia and Ireland participating on the talk program. And one of the things that came up um, when I started doing this is I was talking about the state of radio today. And I, I was thinking about it, and I'm going, who was one of the best guys that I can possibly think of to bring into the program to actually talk about, I don't want to say the early days of radio, but the beginning of, your, of his career. And the first person that popped in mind um, was you. And I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to be able to uh, – to do this with us. But just to give a little background to my audience, how long have you been working in radio itself? I think it was, uh, I started right after Earth was new. <laughs> uh, Bill, a long, long time. I, I actually started uh, right after I, uh, when I was in college, and uh, this was back in Dillon, Montana. Uh, this was back around uh, 1960. Can you imagine? Oh. Uh, no, I wasn't anywhere to be thought of in 1960. But yeah, you, you weren't even a twinkle in your, your mother or father's eye at that time, huh? No, not at all. 
But uh, the business has really changed a lot over the years, as as you know, because you're a professional observer and you're you're an educator, so you watch how things change over periods of time. Uh, I don't know that radio is any better or any worse now than it was before, but it certainly is different. Right. Now, when you you, you said you worked radio in college, when did you get your first, as, as I say, quote-unquote, commercial or professional radio job? Well, this would have been at a station uh, that's called letters for KDBM. That stands for Beaverhead County, Dillon, Montana. Okay. And this radio station was actually a wedding present given by a girl's father uh, to his future son-in-law. Now, isn't that a nice wedding present? I would love it, yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) they built a radio station in uh, in a cow pasture next to a gravel pit just north of Dillon, Montana. And quick story, uh, they... Back then, uh, radio transmitters were composed of tubes and wires. Mm-hmm. Now they're all transistors and resistors, and they're fairly compact and small. This one was huge and generated an enormous amount of heat. They had a picket fence around this little building, which uh, was right next to the, the tower itself. And we had to leave the doors open in the summertime to allow air to circulate and keep the transmitter cool and keep us cool at the same time. Now, the station had their first sponsored newscast. It had only been on the air a few months. First sponsored newscast, and guess who drew the short straw? You did. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> I, you know, I was never prepared in advance. It was always a scratch and a scramble, so there was a lot of dead air and a lot of pausing and, uh, and apologizing. So I got into this newscast. And for the first time in my life, I was prepared with a record to follow the newscast. So when we got to the commercial, I said, we'll have more news after this word from our sponsor. I didn't realize it, but uh, because I'd left the gate and the picket fence open, a sheep had wandered into the building and was now standing in the control room looking directly at me. (laughs) This is a true story, Bill. And I said, we'll have more news after this word from our sponsor. And the sheep went, (laughs) well, I didn't know what to do. So I thought, well, I've got to be honest with the audience. I said, "Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you won't believe this, but, you know, we're located just north of the Club Royal. A sheep has wandered into my control room, and I don't think I'll be able to continue with this animal looking at me. So excuse me while I get rid of the sheep. Now, I'm thinking the audience might think I was just confused, or the owner would think I was not prepared. So I thought, well, I better turn up the microphone so that they can hear me get rid of the sheep, and that way they'll know I was not lying about it. So I turned the microphone all the way up, clomped my way around the end of the console. By this time, the sheep is trying to get out of there because it senses it's in big trouble. So you can hear cloven hoofs on the linoleum floor, as the sheep scratches and scrambles, and I went out and grabbed it by the tail and the back of the neck and eased it out the front door. Well, now I'm thinking, uh, gee, I hope the microphone picks all of this up so that the audience is in on what goes on. Right. I clomped my way back into the studio, sat down, said, well, that takes care of the sheep, and got the giggles. I could not continue. When I shut the microphone off, I could stop laughing, but as soon as I opened it up a crack, I was off to the races again. And finally I said, 
I can't talk anymore, and I just put on the first record. The phone rang. It was the station owner, and I thought, well, I'm fired. Right. And he said, he says, Bogut, I was not listening, but he said, I just got a call from Coast to Coast Hardware. He says, I understand you messed up our first sponsored newscast. You didn't even get the commercial. And I said, yes, I'm afraid, Bert, that I did. And he said, well, I don't know what went on, but the sponsor wants to know if you could do that every day. (laughs) And there was my first introduction to messing around on the radio and including the audience in on whatever was happening. So that, that was really how the career got started. Now, did you ever think that you'd still be doing this, what, 36 years later? No. Uh, actually, never really thought about it that much. Uh, but, you know, here we are all these years later, and do you know what? It is just as much fun today as it was way back when that sheep wandered into the control room. Now, what, what's really nice about that, and I've, I've mentioned this to my audience before, so they had an idea of uh, – who you are, what you sound like, and where you work at. But WJAS is now finally streaming on the Internet. Yes. And so, in other words, you are now opening yourself up, theoretically, to a worldwide audience. As a matter of fact, I have uh, an old uh, colleague and friend who listens every morning faithfully in Billings, Montana. Okay. I have an uncle in California who listens all the time. Uh, brother and sister in Montana, we have listeners uh, actually around the world, England, Germany, France. So they're just uh, uh, dialing up the Internet and listening to streaming audio anytime they want. And, and that, that, to me, I think, in a lot, of way, op- a lot of ways opens the medium up for so much more. But before I get into that, um, you came to KDKA in 1968. Yes. So did you have any other job before you came to uh, KDK? Yes, started in Montana, as you okay. and I were talking about here a little bit ago. Then we lived in Salt Lake City for three years, and uh, Westinghouse Broadcasting came to town and invited me to come back to uh, KDKA in Pittsburgh, and I actually turned the job down three times. Can you imagine? Uh, no. Because, well, the first time they asked me, I said, oh, you know, if I make a move, I want to go somewhere nice. Right. <laughs> this is true. So they said, well, how about Los Angeles? I said, okay. And uh, they had Westinghouse owned a, a station in Los Angeles called KFWB. So I was all set to go out there, and then that station went all news, and they invited me to come back here again. And I turned them down again. And then the program manager for the third time came, and he said, uh, have you ever been in Pittsburgh? I said, no, I never have. Why don't you come back before you give me your answer? So we, uh, I came back in February of 1968 in a snowstorm. Can you imagine driving in on the Parkway West? And my first view of Pittsburgh was through the Fort Pitt tunnels. Uh huh. And when we burst out of the end of the tunnels and I saw downtown Pittsburgh, I had never seen a site like that before. And what's really interesting, Jack, is, is I think anybody that's been to the city of Pittsburgh and have come in that way, all you have to do is mention that, and we all get the same mental image 
of what the city looks like. Um, and, and, and to this day, every single time I go through the tunnels, Bill, I, I just think, wow, yeah, what a sight. And we've been to Manhattan and Los Angeles, and, you know, we've flown over major cities like Chicago in airplanes, and there still is no more spectacular sight in in the world, I don't think, than coming out of the tunnels and looking at downtown Pittsburgh. Now, when you came to KDK, you were actually replacing a very popular uh, morning show of Cortican Company. Well, you know what? Uh, let me just uh, pick a couple of nits here. I actually came here three years after Reed Cordick left. Okay. Palin and Tro, Art Palin and Bob Tro, were on the air for three years after Cordick left. He left in 1965. I got here in 1968. But people don't remember that uh, because Cordick was such an enormous presence in this market. And, and 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 you're right. As soon as you said that, I realized that what my mistake was because I've actually, and this is going back for me, almost 30 years ago. I actually went to school with Art's grandson. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was uh, it was, and I didn't even know who. I mean, I it took me a while to uh, connect who he was because his daughter was the, my friend's uh, mother, and I'm what, six, seven, eight years old, saying, hey, I know him. His, his grandfather's on the radio. They said, but what station? And I told him, they looked at me and thought I was crazy, that we were listening to KDKA. And that was when he was doing the drive. I guess it was right after yours well, in the morning. Something, uh, just as strange along the same lines, Bill. Uh, when I was a kid growing up on the farm in Montana, uh, you know, we didn't have television until like five or ten years after the rest of the country got it because we were so rural. Right. Radio was our television. And one of the things that we did in school was to make a little crystal receiver. Uh-huh. And the only station we could get was KDKA in Pittsburgh. This which was trying in, to, in Montana. Which trying to explain that to someone and and by today's standards they don't understand it. No. It was um just, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to interrupt no, you. It, it, was, it was just a totally different frame of reference. So, uh, you know, when, when I had the opportunity to come to Pittsburgh and, uh, and open up the microphone for that first time and say, uh, you know, KDKA Pittsburgh, it was, it was really quite a thrill for me because this was the first commercially licensed broadcast station in America. Mm-hmm. 50,000 clear channel watts. And, uh, you know, they had at that time, they had the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Pittsburgh Pirates, and they had legendary names in broadcasting like Bob Prince, who did the pirate broadcast. Joe DiNardo did the weather in the morning Uh on on KD Radio. And then names like Bill Steinbach and Art Palin and Ed Chauncey and, uh, you know, names that are uh, unfortunately no longer around. But uh, it was a pretty storied way to... uh, to continue a broadcast career. And, Bill, if you start out number one and you don't mess it up, chances are you will be successful. Right. And one of the, thing, one of the most memorable uh, of, uh, of your broadcast, and I actually got to stay home from school this day, was the day that Uncle Ed retired. Yes. And we were all, my mother and I were in the kitchen, and we, by the time he got done saying goodbye to everybody, there wasn't a dry hot, dry eye in that kitchen yeah, because Uncle Ed was so loved and revered. Yeah, he was he was a wonderful guy. 
Now, the one thing I think is interesting, and I said I was doing some uh, research, uh, not research, but just giving some bio information, and they said this this one article I got said one of the, the most memorable things that you would be known for is creating the word Farkleberry. Yes. <laughs> I mean, of all things, I can't imagine having that written in my obituary saying that you created the word Farkleberry. And, you know, actually, that's kind of like uh, Reed Cordick. I didn't actually create the word Farkleberry. Okay. Uh, uh, quick story. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy wrote an article in the Denver Post, Denver, Colorado, and that article was sent to me, to me by a woman who lived in Greensburg. And the guy was talking about the Farkleberry Bush Festival in North Dakota. Now, the, now the reason I thought that was funny is, uh, have you ever been in North Dakota? No. Okay. Well, in North Dakota, the state tree is a telephone pole. <laughs> I mean, they don't have anything that grows above three feet high with leaves on it. Well, I, I have, a, I have a, actually a listener that is from North Dakota who works at the University of North Dakota, and he, I'm, I'm learning interesting things about North Dakota on a regular basis, like their, their state animal is called a flicker tail. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, yeah, it's an unusual state, but anyhow. All right. Uh, you know, the, some of the longest stretches of straight road in the world are in North Dakota. Okay. And anyway, uh, I thought the Farkleberry Bush Festival in North Dakota was one of the funnier things that I had ever seen or e- ever heard of. So uh, I used to play a march every morning at 645 to get the kids up and get them moving towards school. And, you know, we'd, we'd have a march around the breakfast table. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, you know, okay, kids, uh, you know, don't leave uh, your soap in the sink or I'll send a slithery D out to get you. <laughs> you know, don't don't fill your cereal bowl too full and then pour milk in it so it runs out on the table and you wipe it off on the floor with your elbows and then your mother comes through in her bare feet and has to crunch her way over to the sink. You know, all kinds of things. And I said, I'll send the slithery D to get you. Well, that started a little something that continued on for a period of time. So I used to say little things after the march, one of which was one day I said, uh, Start your heart, eat a Farkleberry tart, and tear the world apart. Purely by accident. Uh huh. And uh, so, you know, there is a certain verbal hazard involved with the uh, with the phrase "Start your heart, eat a Farkleberry <laughs> tart, and tear the world apart." Right? Uh, yeah. So one of the guys on the radio station said he lived for the time that he he heard me say "Tarkleberry" <laughs> because of what would follow. Right. Well then, uh, uh, Farkleberry tarts. Whoa! You know, we had we had started something for Children's Hospital where we were providing cookies, and I thought, well, a Farkleberry tart sounds like it would be a good idea. So I talked to uh, Jim Delegati, who owned all the McDonald's in Western Pennsylvania at that time, and I said, could you come up with a Farkleberry tart? He said, uh, what's the recipe? And I said, I don't have a clue. Said, why don't you just make something up? Put a red food coloring in it. And we'll call it a Farkleberry tart, and we'll we'll uh, sell this for Children's Hospital for a dollar a piece. Right. Okay. So then we had Farkleberry tarts, and then we had Farkleberry snickerdoodles, and Farkleberry brew, and pretty soon, the name Farkleberry became synonymous with the Children's Hospital campaign, and uh, so I guess uh, I got kind of uh, left-handed credit for inventing uh, most of the Farkleberry stuff, but the Farkleberry is actually a legitimate name 
you're going to be impressed with this. It is a vaccinium arboreum. And in English, that means? That, that <laughs> means it's a relative of the holly, holly tree, ah. and uh, it grows uh, native to Texas. And down in Texas, they actually make a drink called a farcotini, uh, where they put uh, one of the little berries in a glass and then fill it up with gin. And I'll be darned. I didn't know yeah, that. Vermouth and all that stuff. So Now, after going to... Uh... After uh, leaving KDK, it was a big and, – and, and maybe for people that are here, I, I mean, it may not have been. But for me, it was because um, this is when I made the decision that I was going to go into broadcasting is when you jump ship from KDKA to go to WTAE. And at that time, not only did you leave the number one station in Pittsburgh to go to a smaller AM – but you also bumped off the air a very popular morning team on WTAE by the name of O'Brien and Gary. Yep, that's true. They, and they, went, they, to, they went to FM. And, 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 if you, and I have some of their tapes in that in the past where they said they still thought AM was where it was going to be at because they felt more comfortable doing their, their, their stick, their routine, whatever you want to call it on AM radio because there was more talk than there was music at the time. Now, they they poked fun at you because of Wednesdays. Any idea why they poked fun of you because of Wednesdays? You know, I, I don't completely understand that uh, over the hump day, right. you know, as, as Wednesday, uh, Possibly it was because I think the day I made the transition was on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Because every time they would say it, one of them would chuckle in the background. Of course, you know, and almost everything they said about me uh, required a chuckle in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, uh, and I and I have this too, that, uh, that in 83, I guess you actually, uh, the program was called Bogut's Breakfast Club. And um, they called it the Senior Citizens Audition Tapes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they did roast me over the coals. Uh, well, and you know what? A quick story here, Bill, that uh, one time before I ever went to work at uh, WTAE, I was out there on another matter cutting a television commercial for one of my clients, and I wandered down to radio to say hi to John and Larry. Well, a man named Ted Atkins was the station manager, and a uh, big, deep, booming voice. He was kind of a legendary character, and I just stuck my nose in the door, and I said, Hi, Ted, and he said, uh, Well, uh, Jack, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, Well, you know, I just stopped out to say hello, and uh, John and Larry and I had agreed that I would apply for a job. And so I talked to Ted, and I said, uh, you know, I'm thinking about leaving KD. Uh, would you have any opening for anybody out here on radio? And he said, whoa. <clears throat> and he cleared his throat and kind of shuffled himself around and sat up in his chair. And uh, well, I haven't really given it any thought, but uh, it might be an intriguing idea. And I said, but the only job I'd be interested in out here is the morning show, knowing that John and Larry were just outside the door. Right, And I could really beat up on them because even before I worked there, they were roasting me over the coals. And then I thought, you know what, before Ted commits himself and really embarrasses and alienates his morning team, 
I better call a halt to this. And I said, all right, John and Larry, come on in now, before he could give me an answer. Uh-huh. But I don't think those guys ever really forgave me for that because, uh, you know, the shuck was on them, right? Right. So, and, uh, and... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean oh, to interrupt no, you. No, no, no. I don't mean to interrupt here. But, uh, yeah, they uh, they gave me a really bad time forever. And, uh, you know, we became friends and still are friends. I mean, they're, they're great guys, and I, en- I enjoyed hearing secondhand what they were saying about me on the air. And they asked me about it one time, and I said, you know what? Every time you mentioned me on the air, that was free promotion. I couldn't try right. that. Yeah. And, and the one thing that I, I don't think they realized, that when they did the transition to FM, FM radio was starting to come into its own. And they were developing a new and younger audience. And I don't think they really appreciated what you did for them because uh, they actually, uh, their careers lasted longer in the Pittsburgh market because of that. And they actually, a lot of credit given to them are the reason why the two-man formula actually worked in the city of Pittsburgh, because they were the first ones to actually do it on a regular basis. Yep, I think that's right. And, uh, Bill, I think you give me too much credit here. Uh, you know, there was no plan uh, in mind there. It was just it was something that happened, and uh, they are uh, very clever guys, and they just they rose to, to the occasion, as do most people who succeed in life. You know, you're getting, given a set of circumstances, and you simply react to and rise to an occasion. And if it works, you're successful. If it doesn't work, why? You right. Go, you go look for another job. Now, and then, and then uh, after you left, and actually, let me go into this beforehand. But you also part of that contract agreement with TAE is you actually went into television too, correct? That was the whole rationale. To tell you the okay. truth, uh, this may sound a little bit strange, and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant because, uh, you know, I, I really don't feel that way. But having been on KD for 15 years, uh, you could have uh, you could have amplified gastrointestinal distress on KD and still be number one. Right. Uh, it, it didn't seem to require a. a a lot of work on my part in order to maintain the ratings. And, you know, we, we were uh, at one time the second highest uh, rated morning show in America. I, to, uh, Bill, I got kind of bored with it. Yeah. What's really interesting is you said that you could pretty much do anything on the air and still be number one. If that's the case, especially now, they're number two. Uh, and, yeah, overall, uh, I think the last ratings book showed that they are now number three. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. But, uh, you know, at, at one time, you know, for whatever it's worth, uh, in the fall of 1968, uh, we had a 44% share in the morning. Which is amazing. 44% of all the people listening to the radio at that time in and around Pittsburgh were listening to Katie in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the morning show there now might have, uh, I think it might have an 11 or a 12, and uh, the station overall has about a 9 share. Mm-hmm. But that goes to show you, back in 1968, there were probably 10 or 12 radio stations included in the ratings book. Now there are 36 to 40 stations included in the rating book. So the audience has fragmented uh, a lot, and... Uh, we no longer broadcast. We all narrowcast. Right. We aim for a specific segment uh, of the audience, 
And uh, back then, we were just aiming for everybody that would, would listen to the radio. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you did the jump into TV. You had a, if I remember correctly, you had a morning show that followed your radio program, correct? Yes. Uh, I did uh, 6 to 9 in the morning on WTAE radio, and then from 10 to 11 on television. And that was the reason I went to... Uh, went to TAE, uh, I really wanted to do television to kind of expand what I was doing as a broadcaster, and uh, the radio was, it was not an afterthought, but it was uh, it was just something to do in order to get the television. So right. we did the television show for about three years, and then we did a pilot for a sitcom called Big Sky Cafe, and uh, uh, kind of interesting, that show, the pilot for that show, which was produced here in Pittsburgh, sat on Squire Rushnell's desk. Now, he was the, uh, in charge of programming for uh, ABC television. Uh-huh. Squire Rushnell had five programs on his desk. Obviously, we did not win. The winning one of those five was Coach. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember very well. Yeah, uh, so Coach won of those five. Now, I'm not saying that had Coach not won, we would have gotten it, but uh, we were one of five programs being considered for uh, network television at that time, and we, we we lost out. And then Ted Turner said that he wanted, uh, he said, can you do 50 shows because I want to put them on uh, the Superstation, WTBS. We didn't know whether we could do 50 or not, but we were willing to try uh-huh. And those negotiations kind of died. Then we had another opportunity to put it in syndication, but they wanted us to move to Los Angeles. And Benny Lisko, who was the writer for the show, and I both agreed we did not want to move to Los Angeles. As a matter of fact, we didn't want to move from Pittsburgh. So we tried to produce the show here in Pittsburgh, and we just could never get the financial backing to do it here. But we could have had we moved to Los Angeles. Now, is there I, – because uh, I actually recorded the pilot episode, um, and I have it. And you and I like – it was in 2001 when I had the pleasure of meeting you. And of all places you came to, you came to the high school that I teach at, and you were discussing the Fido, the FIDO principle, principle with um, our faculty here yes. throughout the district. Yep. And I pulled you into my classroom, and I – we discussed this the same thing about the television program. Did you actually shoot more than one show, or just the pilot was the only one ever put on film no, that, or on that, tape? That's the only one we ever put on tape. Okay, because um, I, I would always would have loved to see how much further that would have gone, because the uh, the whole the Big Sky Cafe has been a theme that or a idea or topic that you've dealt with not only on TV but also in your radio program but now it's on CD correct and with with your uh, your style and and trust me for those of you that are listening to uh, to this interview right now and I've had dinner with Jack on uh, one occasion which was totally by accident and uh, thank goodness I know people in high places in certain areas in the county like my wife but she seated me with Jack at a dinner, and him and I talked for an hour about radio and what he did career-wise and everything else. 
and he is one of the most personal people that you will ever meet. So if you think that this is uh, maybe something that he does as uh, persona for the air, it's not. This is the way he is normally. But the CD I received for Christmas this year, and I've listened to it multiple times. Not only that, but it's now listed as one of my favorites in my iPod. Wow. So I can get in the car and I can listen to it because you have a, a, a style that is so relaxed and so natural that it, it, is, um, it is very, let's say, easygoing. And you would remind a lot of people of, a, uh, of uh, another radio performer by the name of Garrison Keillor. Thank you. That, that's a high compliment. And um, and and I and I was listening to the CD and and before we started the recording of this program today, I I asked you a few things about um, Sky Cafe and Sky Murphy and the people that are that are in these stories. And, and I'll ask you a question again: Are these people real, or are they a compila- compilation of people that you've met over the years? Well, Bill, they really are a compilation of, uh, of people that that I've met and known, uh, you know, I love to write fiction because, uh, fortunately my wife takes care of details. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking yeah, your, about. Your wife, Muriel, I'm sure takes care of an awful lot of details because you, you are more of a creative type, right? Right. And, uh, so, you know, Joni takes care of the details for me. So, uh, when, when you're writing fiction, you can make it up as you go. Now, all of the characters, in Big Sky Cafe uh, and the CD, are uh, they are based in truth, but uh, an awful lot of it is fiction just for the telling of the story. When you, what made you want to write this stuff down? Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Sam Hazo. He was a professor of English at uh, Duquesne University. He is also an author, and he was the Pennsylvania State poet. He's a, he's a wonderful guy, former Marine officer, and uh, just a great writer. Uh, I, I had started to write. Let me back up so this, this, this makes sense. I used to do stories on KD Radio, and, uh-huh. I, and I, I would take a piece of music, and it, uh, I'd listen to the music and say, Oh, you know, Darlene Selwy, the eighth grade picnic. Uh, or, or whatever, and I'd get a thought. So I'd put on the music, which was three or four minutes long, and I would start to ta- tell a story. Sometimes the story had an ending, but no story, and I'd make it up. Sometimes I had a story in mind, but no ending, and I, I'd have to make it up, because when the music ended, I had to end the story. So it was kind of word jazz. Okay. And somebody said, well, what you ought to do is, uh, why don't you write these stories down and put them into a book? Well, then I had uh, a friend of mine, uh, my secretary, Harry O'Toole, write these. He actually transcribed the stories and took them directly from the tapes that I recorded. Then I discovered that the written word and the spoken word are two different things. Because with a spoken word, you can add hesitation and pacing and nuance and inflection and all those things. But with a written word, it has to be right there so that people can uh, read it and get the image for themselves. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I better learn to write. So I started writing, and I contacted Sam Hazel, and I said, Sam, would you take a look at these stories and see if they have any merit at all? And he said, "Uh, you know what? He said, you ought to publish these. So I did, and I put them into a book. 
And uh, then I was encouraged to record the stories in the book, but I never would because I didn't have the music for the background. And I just thought that the stories didn't come to life well enough uh, without the background music. Now, I checked into already recorded music, and it was so prohibitively expensive that it just wouldn't, wouldn't work out. And then I met a man named Vito DeSalvo. Now, he is, uh, he's, uh, he's an educator like you are, Bill. He uh, is director of music in the West Mifflin School District here in Pittsburgh. And uh, he is such a good musician. Uh, he plays all the keyboards and uh, is a composer. He also plays accordion, and when Luciano Pavarotti would come to town, he would specify Vito if there was an opera part uh, requiring accordion. And then sometimes uh, Pavarotti and Vito would do personal appearances together, and Vito would be the whole orchestra on accordion. So uh, I asked Vito one time, I said, uh, would you be interested in doing a CD project with me? And he said, absolutely. And I said, well, I'm going to ask you to do something you've never done before. And he, he looked at me and like, excuse me, because he's written a couple of symphonies, and he's a brilliant musician. I think he's world class. And he's, uh, you know, like, uh, you're going to ask, ask me to do something I've never done in music before? I said, yeah. I want you to write and perform music meant never to be heard. He says, explain that to me. And I said, I want you to write background music for the stories to support the emotional content of the various stories. But uh, I want it to be so subtle that people won't hear the music at all the first time they listen to the stories, maybe only on the second or third listening will they notice the music. And it took some doing and some cooperation between the two of us. But uh, as you've heard on the CD, Bill, uh, I think Vito got it right. Would you agree? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, and and just just the type of music that he wrote for it just enhances those stories that much more. And honestly and I don't think you give yourself enough credit, that you could probably listen to those without the music behind it, but the music just gives it that extra punch that you need to, uh, to listen to it, and especially multiple times, because you made the comment earlier that the people aren't really supposed to hear it the first time. It's on the subs uh, subsequential listenings that they start noticing that the music is back there. Well, uh, on, on one particular cut, it would be the second cut on the CD where we're talking about a man uh, named Ron Gamble. That's not his real name. Right. But uh, he was the guy who was handsome beyond belief. He, uh, he, he made uh, women, young and old, uh, take a deep breath. He made a lot of fathers nervous because he was such a ladies' man, and he could sing, and he was charming, and he had a great sense of humor and all of that stuff. And he wound up as a wino, sitting on the steps uh, near Big Sky Cafe. Mm -hmm. well, when, uh, when Vito finally got the music right for that, and he played it for me, uh, I tell you, Bill, I sat there and I had tears running down my cheeks because it was such an emotional experience for me to literally feel the characters in that story truly come to life. They just, right. Oh. They just jumped right off the tape and in, into your brain. Uh, and then they did. Um, in the beginning of the, in the beginning of the CD, in the opening, you make 
and I'm, I'm not even going to be able to quote you, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it, that we've all had similar experiences no matter where we've been, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. That's true. And I thought about that, and, I, and I'm going back, I mean, of course, um, all of my 40 years, I'm going back and trying to remember or try to put myself in certain situations, either knowing people like this or um, – or been in a situation similar to this. And you're right. I was able to actually relate to everything that was on that CD in a way that I don't think I've ever been able to relate to anything else. Thank you. Uh, that, that's a great compliment, and that was the whole point of the CD. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I'm just looking at my computer screen here at that opening paragraph. I've always been amazed at how much you and I have in common, how many things we share even if we've never met and don't know each other. No matter where we were born or where our parents came from, whether we're rich or poor, plain or fancy, we share more things that make us the same than set us apart. We are all bound together by a common denominator, that sometimes sticky glue of human experience that we thought happened only to us. It's an absolute joy to find that these moments of personal triumph or turmoil happen to everybody in one way or another, and it's the one way or another that makes for a good story. So this, then, is the story of a place we all know, even if we've never really been there. And I think in, uh, in this day and age, because of uh, the, the necessity to, to be politically correct, we are losing some of our ability to tell stories to each other because we are so easy, easy to offend as a society. Would you agree? No, I, I agree with you totally on that. And working with the age group that I work with, which is between 14 and 18, um, when I try to use uh, some of the stuff that um, I've done in the past, or um, which I'm going to be also using portions of your CD here in the, in the coming weeks, on telling stories, they just don't get it because they don't understand the value of it because, of course, they have television. They have the Internet now. They have, they have their iPods. They have their, their MP3 players. They have all this stuff. And what ends up happening is that they are all being entertained individually and not as a group together. And when storytelling is done and done good, it helps a group of people relate to each other. And right now, I think we're just raising a society of individuals and not a society of, of, of families, I guess is a way to put it. Yeah, and if, you know, the most effective means of communicating, in my opinion, is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And we are all story, storytellers, whether we want to be or not, or whether we realize it or not. Because, for example, uh, if, uh, if you and Muriel went to a good movie or a good play or a good vacation spot or a good restaurant, what is the first thing that you do when you get home? You tell everybody about it. You have to call somebody and tell them. And, and you don't make a statement uh, uh, like a newspaper article that, you know what, we went to this place for dinner uh, tonight. You've got to go. Why don't we all go together? Or have you ever been to such and such a place? On So if we find something good or something traumatic in our lives, we naturally tell stories about it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So and, that, and that is the best means of communication we have. And if we lose, lose that because of the, uh, of the necessity to be politically correct, we've saw, lost something valuable. 
And, and you're right, we have. Now, in, on the CD, you do a piece, and, it, and, and when I heard it the first time, I listened to the clip all the way through, and then I played it back again because I was laughing so hysterically. And it was the, the, the track entitled Elvis Saves. Oh, and and uh, and Sky Murphy basically giving his made-up fictitious eulogy for Elvis Presley, and the reason it was done is because he was worried that the people that loved Elvis were going to get in the people that didn't like Elvis because some were saying they were so sorrowful that he died, others were glad that he did, and he was worried, so he felt that he had to eulogize him in a way to stop everybody. But the part of that. But the part of that that got me is the reason why his hips shake. Yes. <laughs> because he licked his thumb and sucked it in a light socket. <laughs> you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at another quick paragraph for, uh, from the story in the CD. Uh, tolerance was something we were all taught and learned at BS Cafe. Uh, you had to be tolerant. You never knew who would be sitting next to you. For example... A minister and his wife sat, sat next to a wino one day, and the missus liked gab. The reverend ignored her half the time and was delighted when she talked the ear off someone else. When they sat down at the counter, she turned to the man next to her and struck up an unsolicited conversation. That was the last time she asked someone with what smelled like old sacramental wine on his breath how he was. Well, I'm just fine, Susie, came the fragrant reply. I'm not Susie. I'm the Reverend Mrs. Sonicson, and this is the Reverend. Well, how do you do, and how's your old wazoo? The drifter shot back. I beg your pardon, she said. And what is a wazoo? She was almost immediately sorry she asked that question. <laughs> and then it goes on and on and on. But, uh, you know, there were so many great human moments that took place in Big Sky Cafe that... Uh, if you were there and you were observant, the only thing you could do is tell somebody else the story about it. So it's uh -huh. the storytelling that's really the, the key ingredient here. Well, I, I liked your 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 uh, your when you finished with that. Whenever you what was better, the that situation or the pastor just grinning with his thin lip smile uh -huh. um, <laughs> in response yeah, to and, what and, she and did. He watched his wife struggle with a big sky cafe lesson in sociology. <laughs> now, the other thing too, and I, I listened to this and, and I've always been a, a big fan of yours and also the big sky stuff, but you refer to it as BS cafe. Yes. Now, I could take those two letters of BS to mean something else. Was that intentional? Well, yeah. The, the reason it was referred to as BS Cafe was uh, because oh, – hang, hang on a second, Bill. Okay. Uh, is somebody dialing the telephone here? Hmm. All right. I, I guess we're all right. I didn't, yeah, we're okay I didn't now. tell whether it was on my end or your end. Uh -huh. The reason it was called uh, BS Cafe uh, is – because all of the problems in the world were settled in conversation mm -hmm. at Big Sky Cafe. Right. In fact, that was the main ingredient at Big Sky Cafe. It wasn't the food and it wasn't the help. It was a conversation between people of all nationalities and ages uh, talking to each other. So that's, that's why it was sometimes referred to colloquially as Big Sky or as BS Cafe. 
Okay. Because that, that there, because I, I never thought about it before until, like I said, I was listening to the CD and I was, uh, coming back home. I was, um, up at some families over the, um, holiday weekend and I'm, I'm, I'm coming back home and I'm listening to it and my two sons are sound asleep and it made me to start thinking about that going, you know what, I've been at a place like that and I can remember a place, it was in um, Richland Township, it was a donut shop called Cow's Donuts sure. and I was, just, I was just like eight years old at the time and my grandfather took me there and I was like observing all this interaction between all these people, never said anything, but was watching what was happening. And I and I'll, that's what this reminded me of was me going back into my childhood, remembering those moments of being with my grandfather and saying, "Hey, this sounds really familiar." So, I, I got a real a real kick out of it. Now, one thing before I let you go here, because it's hard to believe that we've been doing this for almost 50 minutes now. It, it seems like it's uh, just flown by, but I was going through some other stuff and I noticed that on. The, a program aired on TV that you did on March 27, 1973, where you played a character by the name of Ace Bogus. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You're, you're talking about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Ace Bogus was, uh, you know, uh, we watched that program uh, uh, David Newell, uh, Mr. McFeely, was kind uh-huh. enough to send me the video here a few months ago, and I watched that program with with our grandkids, and that was it was really pretty dumb. But that was meant to be a parody on all of the television personalities, particularly performers, who who were, who were more concerned with looking into the camera and getting their face on TV than they were <laughs> reporting the news. Or whatever else was happening. So, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, I, I did a number of episodes with Mister Rogers. Uh, later on, from Ace Bogut, I became Salesman Bogut, and uh, uh, sold uh, an airplane to King Friday and a new wardrobe to Sarah Saturday, and worked with Daniel the Tiger. Uh, one, do we have time for one quick Mister Rogers story? Oh, sure, go ahead. I'll, I'll make all the time for you. Okay. Uh, Fred Rogers was, he was what you saw on television. He was really a wonderful man. And, I, you know, I don't use that description for anybody very often. Uh, but he was, he was truly a giant, humble personality. And uh, the, the interesting thing about doing Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was once you got into character on the set, no matter what happened, you stayed in character. Mr. Uh-huh. Rogers did because he played, uh, you know, he played King Friday and Sarah Saturday and X the Owl and all those things. So uh, I was talking to King Friday on the set, and there he was with his crown and everything, and uh, we're we're talking about him buying an airplane when all of a sudden one of the lights went out, and uh, part of the studio became dark. And so King Friday said to the crew, the stage crew, he says, And what's happening out there right now? It seems like we've lost a bit of our light. They said, yes, King Friday, uh, one of the lights went out. And he said, well, would you fix the damn things? And Bogut's in a hurry. (laughs) And, of course, we all just lost it but never got out of character. Uh Uh-huh. Because you did. But he was in total command of what was going on. And once once you got into the neighborhood... That was it, but he was truly a wonderful guy. I had the opportunity, actually, 
twice within the last two years to talk with Joe Negri about Fred Rogers. Great guy. Joe is is one heck of an individual. He's one heck of a jazz guitarist, too. And um, that's how I met him. And, of course, I went up to him and said, you will always be handyman Negri to me because of my childhood. And he, he relayed a story similar to what you said about how genuine that Fred was that he was just a guy that would go up to anybody and automatically, and I don't want to use the term be, be their friend, what, but would be willing to talk to them. Yeah, he and, was one of the most open human beings I've ever known. And, and another story that I can relate real quick is that um, it was, I forget what year it was, it was, about, it was within the last uh, 10 years, but he was actually the commencement speaker at the University of Pittsburgh for their master's program with, in education. And my sister-in-law was among the audience um, at the time, and they said as soon as he walked to the podium, the whole crowd stood up and started to sing, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, for someone that has had that much effect on people's lives, it, it was really special to him. Now, you made a comment to me earlier that Fred actually wanted you on the program, wanted you to be a regular uh, he, he did offer that uh, the salesman Bogut character uh, could be a regular, uh, and uh, at the time I didn't realize what kind of an impact Fred Rogers was having. Uh, and uh, it, to, to my chagrin, now uh, I should have made the time, but I, you know, I told him that you know I just had too many other things to do. Uh-huh. It seems kind of silly now, but uh, hindsight, hindsight is always twenty twenty. No question. Yeah. Yeah. So a um, couple things before I let you go here, since uh, we're wrapping up this hour. Um, you're you're now working with uh, WJS. You've been with them for what ten years now? I think yeah, I think nine years altogether, Bill. Okay. Now prior to that, you were working on their FM, with, which is uh, Wish One Hundred. Yes. What year did you go there? Because wasn't there a brief period of time where you were not in yeah, radio at all I, in Pittsburgh? I was not on the air at all from about 1988 to 1990 or 91. Okay. Uh, I, I had become a professional speaker, and uh, you know I was in business uh, for myself, and and I thought, you know what, I've had a wonderful broadcast career, have no regrets at all. So I was just doing other things. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Tony Renda, who owns Renda Broadcasting, uh, came and asked if. Uh, if I would like to go back on uh, on Wish, and I said, uh, sure. So I uh, went on Wish FM, and uh, and then ultimately uh, WJAS, and uh, you know here we are with uh, 1320 WJAS, uh, for what, whatever it's worth, is the number one highest rated nostalgia radio station in America. And I, I read that, and I'm going, wow. That that has to do with not only yourself, but also the other talent they have there, such as Bill Cardell, uh, Chris Shevlin, and uh, a handful of other people that are uh, uh, Mr. McCann. Yeah, and and that that is that is amazing to be able to say that you are the number one nostalgia station um, in the country. Now, when you left, when you left Wish, did you were you upset of leaving the FM to go to the AM side, or did you feel the AM was a better fit? Uh, you know what? Uh, actually, I misspoke here a little bit. Uh, I went 
uh, from uh, WTAE almost directly to WISH. It was between WISH and WTAS okay. that I took uh, almost three years off. Oh, okay. And, uh, uh, you know, I had uh, – well, it, it's kind of crazy, Bill. I had thought my – my broadcast career is history, and as I mentioned before, I thought it was a good one, had no regrets at all, and was invited to go back on WJAS. And the first day I got back there, I had one of those epiphany moments. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh-huh. This really feels good. And uh, we're kind of a dinosaur. You know, we are still having fun every single day. We don't have a real format we don't have a consultant uh, looking over our shoulders, uh, giving us blanket answers to specific problems. Uh, we do, it just kind of roll your own spontaneous radio. Mm-hmm. And and with what with uh, what I'm doing now, because unfortunately I never was really able to official officially crack, as I call the Pittsburgh market. I was always on stations that were below number 15 when it came to a rating, but. With what I'm doing now with the podcasting, it, it, it gives me actually more freedom oh, sure. to do what I want to do because not only am I being listened to right now, we're listening to live, but someone now has the ability to go in and actually download the program as a as a one-hour or two-hour program, and they listen to it at a later time. Do you see the way radio is changing, especially with JAS going to more of a – I mean, the Pittsburgh market is still number one. Are they looking at expanding that to more of a regional or a national market because of the Internet? I think that's a, a national transition, uh, but uh, as a practical matter, they can only sell on a local basis. Okay. Advertisers will only pay for local coverage uh, because uh, it's impossible to measure how much uh, exposure you get on the Internet at this point in time. If we ever get to the point where we can uh, measure the audience that we have around the world, mm -hmm. uh, then, uh, you know, it, it might be a, a different story. Because you could actually do national sponsorships then. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we, we could sell something beyond just local advertising. Because that, that, that that's the one thing that I'm seeing that with this type of technology right now that I see that happening, maybe not in the, media, in the, uh, the uh, immediate future, but somewhere down the line eventually. So, well, the business Jack, is changing, yeah, but uh, thank you, Bill. And I, I really appreciate you taking uh, your time um, to be able to do this with me today. I know it was uh, – with the holidays in there, we were having a little bit of problem connecting with each other, but I appreciate you doing that. And again, for those of you that are listening to this, either live or on the uh, download, and I'm also going to play a portion of this back tonight on my uh, my normal program, that uh, you can hear Jack Bogut on a uh, on a daily basis, Monday through Friday on WJAS, um, thirteen twenty a.m. If you're in the Pittsburgh market, and the website address, which I get, is it. 1320WJAS, or is it the other way around? That's 1320WJAS.com. And you can listen to Jack in the morning. And the time you're on again? From uh, 6 to 10 in the morning. And that's Eastern Standard Time. The other one, too, is Jack's CD is, uh, is for sale, of course. And where can they get the CD at, Jack? Uh, the CD is available on my website, Bill, uh, which is StorytellerJack.com. Okay, and you can, you can go to any Borders bookstore in the Pittsburgh market. Okay, well, 
and I will send them to that. And I am going to send you my 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 liner, Please. my my liner sleeve, so you can autograph it for me. You're on, <laughs> Jack. I had a good time. I hope we can do this again in the future, and uh, talk some more about uh, what you've done and what you're planning on doing here in broadcasting. How many more years do you see that you have? Oh, I have. Are you ever going to retire? I don't think so. I mean, this uh, if it ever stops being fun, then I might uh, I might think about retiring, but uh, we're still having too good a time. You know, there's much too much too much to be said about maturity. I think it's highly overrated. <laughs> well, Jack, I appreciate it and once again, thank you very much. All right, Bill, always a treat to talk to you too. And uh, if you wouldn't mind staying online real quick, I have a couple questions for you. So uh, I will end this right now. Everybody, you've been listening to Online with Bill Alexander, the interviews. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing, um, as I still say, Pittsburgh radio legend Jack Bogut. Ready to launch a new career or not sure what to do after graduation? Rumkey is hiring for CDL driving trainees. We pay you to get your CDL license while working for us. Driver trainees receive $18 an hour, great benefits, and Rumkey will pay your CDL costs. Once you're a CDL driver, you can earn $1,000 to $1,300 a week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in your first year. Apply today and launch a lucrative career at Rumkey. Apply now at RumkeyCareers.com. Equal opportunity employer restrictions apply. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.